0: Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org.
1: We've been looking at the question of inequity and reaching health equity equality at the global level, but we know it takes work serious plans, preparation, and then implementation. And there are many things to be overcome, but also we have a lot of momentum and excellent examples. This panel will look at it at from the strategic level. It'll look at it in terms of how is it going inside of their companies, the decisions that they've been making and how that implementation has been truly addressing equity issues, inequality issues. Each panelist will give brief opening remarks, and then we'll have a discussion and conversation about what we can learn, what we can take as a lessons at the strategic level. We'll start with Dr. Henry Ting, formerly with Mayo Clinic and now the Chief Health Officer at Delta Airlines. Dr. Ting and his team at Mayo were responsible for shaping the approach of Delta Airlines towards a pandemic and their success in regards to keeping their employees, customers, and the broader community safe by their commitment to following the science, being committed to equity and to community service. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ping. Please join me on this uh, Zoom screen, and thank you for your opening remarks.
0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with Mark and an honor to be on this panel uh, with uh, my co-panelists. So um, my name is Dr. Henry Ting. I'm a cardiologist. Um, My career uh, has uh, spanned um, much about health services research and has, I think, guided me towards the importance of not just health equity and health justice, but social equity and social justice. I think the two are critically linked. Um, Just sharing a little bit about myself and my own career. Um, You know, I I, um, started my career as an interventional cardiologist uh, and treating people who are having heart attacks. And and that's where I began to see that um, it's not about the care that a physician can provide in the cardiac catheterization lab or the operating room. Much of it is about everything that happens or doesn't happen before it. And after it, Um, my career as a health service researcher led me to understand large databases um, because it's not the individual and it's not a small group. It's what happens at the population level or the community level and the care that we say is ideal, evidence based, guidelines driven versus the reality of the care they provide every single day. And I was struck at at an early stage in my career that what we say is the best care that every American or every person should have um, after a heart attack, that when you look at these large databases, the actual delivery of that care is approximately 50% of the eligible people who have a heart attack and receive these treatments. Um, From that research, I understood that it wasn't enough just to demonstrate the gaps or the opportunities um, or identifying people who are doing it well, um, the best practices, or the leaders. Um, the hard part was is really about translation and spread. How can we take something that works in one area or one country and translate it and disseminate it across the entire world? Um, that led me into a career of trying to change the world and change medical practice Um, the two senior positions i held were one the chief value officer at mayo clinic and at mayo clinic we defined value as quality plus safety plus experience of care in the numerator divided by the cost of care per person over time in the denominator, um, and trying to um, enhance high value care across all of our sites, um, 20 hospitals for the Mayo Clinic, regardless of whether that heart attack patient came in through the front door, the back door, or any side door. I also served as the Enterprise Chief Quality Officer at New York Presbyterian, which is University Hospital Cornell in Columbia. During the global pandemic and early on, I had the opportunity to lead a multidisciplinary broad team from Mayo Clinic, which provided a consultation with Delta Airlines so that Delta could rethink and reimagine all their processes and systems to improve safety. And that's what led me today after 12 months working with that team and working with Delta to become the chief health officer and the first chief health officer at Delta Airlines, and the first in the US airline industry. So, I look to hearing from my co panelists and look forward to hearing the discussion today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Ting, and thank you for giving that life story so we can see that when a doctor or a caregiver begins to look beyond just the patient, the emergency room we come into the broader society and then our ambitions to really address these issues of equity become paramount in the fundamental mission of caregiving you know really the care of that patient the care and direct uh, making a difference in the life of that patient thank you we'll be back to you with their discussion i want to welcome our second panelist um dr margaret mary wilson it serves as the chief medical officer for united healthcare global United Healthcare, a, lo- a local Minnesota based company, um, has a global clinical practice. And Dr. Um, uh, Wilson is responsible for that global clinical practice throughout the group. Her uh, career has spawned many different fields of medicine and worked in many parts of the planet North America, Europe, Africa. United Healthcare is our nation's largest health insurance company. It's also a healthcare provider, uh, ranking seventh on the Fortune 500 of U.S. public companies and fifteenth on the world index. It's a very large institution that has devoted itself uh, to care. And um, when you visit there, visiting their offices like visiting United Nations, everybody is part of the United. Healthcare Group, and I'm so thrilled to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Wilson. Please join us and please uh, give us your opening remarks. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Ritchie. It's an
2: absolute pleasure to be here today and to share the panel with my um, distinguished colleagues. I'm really looking forward to it. First of all, I'd like to start, you know, during times like this with a word of extreme gratitude. To my colleagues out there, all the healthcare professionals and clinicians across the world, and also the people across the world, I think the past year and a half has really been um, a lesson for all of us um, in grit and resilience. And it's been with such um, admiration and humility that I have really watched how we've all come together as a global unit. I must also express my condolences, recognizing that Um, Several have lost family and friends during this trying time, and and, and that is indeed very hard. So thank you, Mr. Ritchie. My name is Margaret Mary Wilson, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer for United um, Healthcare Global. Um, My career has spanned um, several different continents. Um, I um, practiced and taught medicine, so clinical bedside and academic medicine, in, in Africa, in the United Kingdom, and in the United States. And in all those three, across those three continents, um, I have had the opportunity to experience health um, inequity and observe healthcare disparities, both through the lens of a provider and also through the lens of a patient. And that indeed started my personal search as an individual, because the observation was that healthcare systems, no matter where they were positioned across the world, all seem to experience challenges that drove um, health inequity. And I'm really, really um, honoured to work with an enterprise where health equity, as we say, is the measure of our mission. At United Healthcare Global, we um, Serve specific populations across the world. We have a footprint in about 130 countries. um, And we serve specific populations in some countries with their in-country healthcare needs. And we do this by providing health benefits Medical care delivery and health services. We also provide health and well-being solutions to globally mobile populations, expatriates, and international travellers. So across the world, we have outside the US, we have 70,000 employees in total, and about 36,000 clinicians. Um, with a presence in 130 countries, our largest footprint is in South America. We also have a presence in Portugal, the United Kingdom, India, and Australia. Um, And we serve a total of about 6 million beneficiaries outside the United States. Mm -hmm. So this brings together a collection of countries, it brings together different cultures, different languages, different healthcare systems, different clinical models, different consumer and provider populations, and has really been a great training ground and a great learning ground for us um, around the challenges of of, of health um, inequities and health disparities. Um, So I'm really excited. Health equity, as I said, is the measure of our mission. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation today as we collectively think through how
1: we advance um, health equity across the world. Thank you, Mr. Ritchie. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. And now I'm pleased to uh, invite our third panel member. Uh, Dr. Pierre Theodore. Uh, Pierre Theodore is uh, one of the world's leading um, heart uh, transplant specialists. And in that career of uh, developing that skill and that very special uh, way of practicing medicine, Dr. Theodore developed a number of new innovations inside the industry and within his clinical work. Um, And he was eventually asked to come and uh, join the team at Johnson & Johnson where he leads the global external innovation as vice president. Um, And Dr. Theodore has also been a person who's been developing a much broader global vision about what we can do how we might use the current attention that is uh, on healthcare and the global nature of threats uh, to really look at some of the other equity issues like the lack of affordable and available surgeries wherever you are on the planet. And so I've been a real fan of uh, Dr. Theodore's work in bringing public attention and then political attention and global attention to addressing some of these bigger issues that face us in the question of, eco- of, of equality and, and, and equity in our system. Uh, Dr. Theodore, please join us and please um, uh, greet us with your opening message.
3: Thank you so very much, Mark. Your remarks are too kind. And I also must say, in response, that all of us very much remain in all of your personal energy and commitment to the well being of all and the central role that global Minnesota plays and the state of Minnesota itself plays as a leader in the domains of equity and healthcare delivery. For that, we are all very grateful. And I would also like to add my voice to express a sense of condolence for where we stand now globally in facing a pandemic and recognizing how much work there is still still to be done in addressing health inequities. There is a theme that I have heard repeated by virtually every speaker thus far, which is the notion that the pandemic, if it has taught us nothing else, is that we do not live in a bubble, and we never did. And the health inequities that we have observed, they create a tremendous drag on productivity and the costs are simply enormous, as anyone in the healthcare sector can attest, As you mentioned by background, I am a surgeon first and foremost, but now having joined what I consider the largest diversified healthcare company in the world with a footprint worldwide and goods and services that face 1.2 or so billion customers per day, I now have and have been given an opportunity and a responsibility to address some of the systemic inequalities that exist in healthcare. Patients that present late with advanced disease or die early, leaving families, takes away from their productivity for a productive life and deprives the families, both economically and emotionally, leading to several of the inequities that we face. We've never been isolated, as I mentioned, in terms of our healthcare concerns. And the pandemic has really brought into relief how much we are connected whether it's on a national level, where there is no such thing, of course, of national or regional isolation, but also in terms of sector, where we recognize that public and private sector each play a significant role in addressing health inequities. In 2020 and going into 2021, in the U.S. alone, we saw a all-cause mortality increase of over 20% with a lion's share of that burden falling on on patients of color. And that creates a responsibility from our perspective to understand some of the fundamental drivers of inequity, both domestically in the US and worldwide. As a large diversified healthcare company with marquee brands in the spaces of consumer health, medical devices and pharmaceuticals, while there is great capacity here, this also brings great responsibility. We consider our first responsibility to be to the patients at Johnson & Johnson, and but beyond that, it's to the employees that also work there, and also to the communities in which we bring our products and services. What we have seen over the course of the last year and into 2021 that has struck us so much on both the healthcare front and in terms of social justice was a call to action an action in terms of words, financial commitment, and emotional commitment to bold action, including putting our own piece, putting our own, creating a, a people-first culture at Johnson & Johnson, whereby we drive additional levels of diversity and inclusion in our own ranks, where we make enduring long-term partnerships with community-based organizations that are driving change that will narrow the gap and outcomes across populations, both domestically in the U.S. and worldwide. We are extraordinarily proud, just recently, to have entered into a commitment with the African Vaccine Acquisition Trust to make available hundreds of millions of doses of COVID-19 vaccine to the world's most vulnerable populations as we continue to address the most pressing healthcare needs in the United States. I am delighted to participate in this conversation where we start to tease apart the role that the private sector can play in addressing these very critical public health concerns. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to the discussion.
1: Thank you, Dr. Theodore. And maybe I'll come right back to you, having been one of the recipients of Johnson & Johnson vaccination, although I had to drive many hours to get to it it was uh, 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 literally a life-changing moment to begin to look ahead. But as you mentioned in your comments, um, all of these gifts of science and medical technology, all of these um, add the extra question, what are you doing with that extra life? And uh, Earl Bakken, the founder and founder of Medtronic, inventor of pacemakers. He spent his last 20 some years asking everyone whose life was extended by a pacemaker or perhaps by a heart transplant, what then are you doing with those extra years? What's that responsibility? I know one of your passions is the question of essential surgeries and that Johnson Johnson has helped some cities get some mobile surgery units and mobile units for vaccination and others. Can you share a little bit about that as a putting words into action kind of deed? You're on mute. Thank you so very much. It wouldn't be 2021
3: if you didn't have someone start talking while still on mute. So thank you for bringing that up, Mark. With respect to mobile units, think of that as a technique to overcome some of the barriers that often exist with patients, which is to say that there is often a lack of trust, or frankly, trustworthiness of healthcare systems. So so to the degree that we can break down some of that barrier of this traditional brick and mortar healthcare system and bring healthcare to those in need, we consider that to be an important logistical strategy to overcome inequity. So in 2020, we were able to partner with a series of community-based organizations in rural settings, in urban settings, on indigenous lands, to stand up mobile health systems that allowed us to reach patients for COVID-19 testing, distribution of PPE, and connecting into social services as a specific strategy to address health inequity. But the theme is not to make healthcare mobile necessarily, but really mobilizing access to the healthcare, making sure that the doors are open for all to access healthcare.
1: Dr. Wilson, you mentioned some things around getting that access uh, to telemedicine and, and new things. It seems like uh, United Health, in its global nature of delivering healthcare services in different parts of the planet, that uh, you've really created a platform or a, an opportunity, a laboratory, if you will, to really see where can this pandemic lead us, to that Build Back Better model. Could you speak to that in terms of what you're seeing and what you're excited about, what you're inspired by?
2: Certainly, certainly. Thank you, Mr. Ritchie. You know, I think that we've seen this coming for quite a while, but the pandemic accelerated a lot of thinking around the criticality of telemedicine and virtual health. You know, where we are as we think about healthcare transformation, medicine is not simply a question of disease prevention. And certainly not simply a question of wellness preservation. I think, you know, the way we view it at United, our thinking has evolved beyond that. Health is a construct that must be seamlessly integrated into the life of a person right? So as we think about the rising costs of healthcare, as we think about the fact that even though the cost of healthcare is rising, clinical outcomes still remain suboptimal. The consumer, the nature of the person is changing. The provider is changing. And we really need to think through both the consumer and the provider experience, right? It, be, it, it is becoming critical that um, we recognize that we cannot brick and mortar our way through healthcare. We cannot possibly build enough facilities to service pay people and to preserve health um, with a brick and mortar structure. We have the technology to create a virtual healthcare ecosystem that is uniquely customized for each person. And COVID, the pandemic, actually taught us that we can no longer anywhere in the world rely on a healthcare system model that is constrained by geographical boundaries, because diseases don't operate that way. Diseases are not a respecter of boundaries. So it has become really critical. And I think what excites me about this is the urgency with which all stakeholders are leaning into telehealth medicine. And also the other exciting piece is the adoption rate. I think the pandemic really accelerated the adoption rate by both providers and consumers. And here's the benefit of this, as we think about the healthcare system that we are all collectively creating, leveraging telemedicine, we have increased connectedness by all providers involved in the patient's care all coming together in a real time, very dynamic way. We also have the consumer and the consumer's caregiver able to access that. Healthcare is coming into their lives as part of their lives, sitting at the center of health preservation. And I think this is important as we think through health equity, because one of the greatest challenges around health equity is access. How do people in vulnerable populations or in remote populations access high-quality healthcare? care? Geography has always been a constraint to that. And we're seeing that telemedicine is able to get us beyond those barriers. The other piece that we're witnessing is around simplification, leveraging technology, to eliminate several of the barriers that made accessing healthcare difficult for our patients. You know, one of the things that we found really exciting during the pandemic, in several of the countries in which we operated, in South America, uh, government regulations precluded telemedicine between physician and patient. But very, very quickly, we recognized that if we were all collectively going to address the pandemic challenge, we would need to quickly reevaluate that. And you saw those regulatory barriers come down very quickly in those countries. And at the same time, you saw providers and patients lean into really rapid adoption. We were able to put together robust telemedicine models in countries where this had been prohibited prior to the pandemic over a course of about a month. And we did this in all our countries, and we saw really, really high um, adoption rates. It was critical to helping us manage the surge. Hospitals were being overwhelmed, outpatient offices were being overwhelmed, and we were able to create a low-complexity telemedicine healthcare ecosystem to cope with patients who needed that. And I think what I find most exciting is that even as the pandemic appears to have stabilized, our concern was that adoption rates would fall precipitously. We're actually seeing that they're holding stable, which says to us that both the patients the people and the providers recognize that this is truly the new direction in our transformational arc
1: of healthcare. So I'm really excited. Very exciting. And this afternoon we'll be hearing from the folks who are working to bring the 5G's very high speed broadband to marry in with the great success in Rwanda, where they have really been very successful in dealing with COVID, but many, many other issues. And so knowing that this is your experience, it's exciting to think that this will also advance other infrastructure, other types of accessibility for things like education and other parts of it. I know that both uh, Dr. Theodore and Dr. Wilson, you're you're, you're really focusing on how this has accelerated and people are leaning into changes that will be very important as we go forward. I know that in the case of Delta Airlines, and I am a little bit uh, conflicted here because I'm both uh, a native of Georgia, but I live now in Minneapolis, and Northwest Airline and Delta are, of course, a merged airline. But we are very proud that our fellow Americans and others speak in this way. They say, you know, there's only one airline that feels safe to fly on. I had to fly, and so I was so grateful that Delta was there with the kind of care the explicit care and the exchange of information that made people feel like this was truly different. Dr. Ting, you and your team at Mayo and then the team at Delta have created what looks like a very successful business model alongside of or integral to this health protection model. Can you give us some, some insights into that? Am I am I reading the situation right? Or am I just being a kind of a Uh, Georgia and Minnesota uh, spokesperson and not really seeing the full situation.
0: Thank you for your kind words, uh, Mr. Ritchie. Um, At uh, Delta Airlines, um, safety has always been our number one priority. Um, And we did that extremely well uh, in terms of the safety at the airport, the safety during our flights. What we experienced during the uh, COVID global pandemic was an external threat and a situation that many of us have never faced before, unless uh, any of us were around for the 1918, 1919 influenza pandemic. Um, and as pointed out by my co-panelists, um, what, you, what we experienced was this humility and collaborativeness and, and at Delta Airlines, we call it teamwork on the fly, where experts uh, from Mayo Clinic, Emory, Delta Airlines, CVS, Lysol, State Departments of Health, CDC came together and really tried to, one, protect our people and our customers when they had to fly for, uh, during the pandemic for essential travel. And, you know, it, the pandemic really emphasized that it was uh, the safety of our people and our customers that we had to preserve. And that really became the focus. Um, So some tangible, real examples beyond what you experienced, Mr. Ritchie, on the flight, were behind the scenes, all of our policies and procedures were carefully reviewed and redesigned so that the safety of people and customers were prioritized. Uh, we developed testing for all of our people um, because we knew that over 50 percent of cases were asymptomatic and identifying early and isolating our people and our employees with early testing before they can expose others was a core component Uh, and we worked with Mayo Clinic and Quest and other groups to really implement this testing for all of our employees on a weekly or twice weekly basis completely predicated based on the case rates in each area of the world where we operated. Further, um, I think we have the first of its kind public-private partnership with the Georgia Emergency Management and Homeland Security Agency, also known as GEMA, to deploy vaccinations in the state of Georgia. Delta Airlines has 80,000 global employees uh, across the world, but our world headquarters are in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. And we partnered with the uh, GEMA and Department of Health and the governor of the state of Georgia and deployed um, a mass vaccination site at the Delta airline headquarters through our parking lot with drive-through vaccination using our expertise in logistics and operations and access to vaccines uh, from the state and, and we deployed this vaccination and brought it to our people um, in Georgia. So all the vulnerable people uh, across the state of Georgia. Um, the vaccines were available in Concourse C for all airport employees. The vaccines were available at our Delta Air Flight Museum and also in our parking lot. And over the last... Um, month, we vaccinated over 60,000 people, and our vaccination rate is on pace at 5,000 doses per day. It's the largest vaccination site in the state of Georgia, particularly targeting the most vulnerable um, to COVID. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, at Delta Airlines, our, our our mission is we say that no one better connects the world. Um, pre-pandemic, we, we carried 200 million passengers across 50 countries, um, and 300 destinations. And by doing that and connecting the world, we believe that we have a responsibility, as we mentioned, to change the world together for the better. And the decisions we'll make are guided by our core values. And those core values include social justice, social responsibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I do wanna add my voice to what my co-panelists have mentioned in terms of the gratitude and what we've learned. And I would add that perhaps the most notable consequence of COVID-19 has been the unequal toll on the poor, the vulnerable and the minorities. Whether you wanna measure that in terms of case rates, mortality rates, access to personal protective equipment diagnostic testing or vaccines, this is what we've witnessed and this is the opportunity and challenge in front of all of us. I would pledge that our next normal will not be defined by our old normal or by fate, it will be defined by the choices that we can make today and at Delta Airlines, those choices will be guided by our core values of social responsibility, social justice and equity.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ting. And of course, um, as somebody who, you know, has been off flying for quite a while, but I know that there are uh, those special moments and I have uh, uh, potentially a 100th anniversary family reunion in Georgia that's been postponed a few times. And so that may be in my near future. But in any case, it has been um, remarkable to see this commitment to social justice and to equity, but also to see the application of that with that commitment to safety then played out in the community, among customers, in the employees, and to see that that has been a very successful strategy. And so it's, it's inspiring to hear that story. I know that uh, in the case of Johnson & Johnson, which is really a global corporation, um, there are opportunities to both see and appreciate new approaches, bring those ideas back and share them with others, and to see advancement go faster and faster when you have such a global footprint. Uh, Is there a kind of way that Johnson & Johnson Through your particular, when you're responsible for that sort of global external innovation, that you bring in these ideas from around the planet and then they help improve everybody's lives.
3: Yeah, um, thanks, Mark, for that important question. Uh, And before answering directly, I want to echo something that the doctor team mentioned, which is that the pressure of the pandemic has forced private sector entities to truly reflect on the values and the mission statements that guide us. And for us, for example, in our credo and our clearly our similar values that are being held by both institutions or all three institutions represented today, we have this opportunity to truly pressure test our capacity to live into our value system. I think it's one of the more important lessons gained from this pandemic. Who are we as institutions? There is a theme that we like to use at J&J, and I do not think this is a cliche, and it goes that good ideas can come from everywhere. Our chief scientific officer several years ago revamped our innovation system to put what we call innovation centers around the world and major hubs of innovation. Uh, so that we could have essentially an open door on new ideas. And as the organization of J&J continues to expand its footprint into Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South America and beyond, so too do we continue to expand these innovation centers and versions thereof to allow additional areas of innovation to come into the organization. For For organizations like all of ours, that are deeply matrixed and sometimes complicated to access, it becomes a major area of focus to make it easy for good ideas to penetrate, if you will, the organization. That is someplace that we have worked very hard over the course of the last several years to create an environment and an ecosystem where those who are building new companies, who are developing new ideas, whether it's in a university setting, in a startup, or in a publicly traded organization have a place where there's a conversation that can be held and innovations can enter in to a large matrix organization. Very critical to our
1: mindset. Great. I know that. Later today, we'll be hearing from some of those grassroots networks like Global Black Youth, which has been uh, really lifting up the entrepreneurs everywhere uh, uh, in response to COVID. So it's important that there is a, a kind of a global openness and an appreciation and a company commitment to bring those ideas from everywhere and to bring them together so that all can benefit. Dr. Wilson, your um, uh, focus in a global setting, Brazil is a huge uh, part of the global aspects. And Brazil, like the United States, has had a very high level of uh, infection and death and, you know, difficulty in getting our arms around it. Are there lessons from the United Health Global that have helped to figure out the best strategies and to help us all move forward together.
2: Yes, Mr. Ritchie, thank you. It's it's really. Um, I think you said at the beginning of this session that this has been a year of great learnings, and it actually has. And as we think about uh, our large footprint in Brazil and across South America, for us, it's become a question of, you know, how. How do we share best practices? How do we facilitate knowledge transfer um, in a way that we mitigate health inequities? You know, my background as a physician is internal medicine, geriatrics, and cardiology. And prior to joining United Healthcare, um, I had been one of those frontline physicians standing at the bedside um, and experienced knowledge transfer, depending on which country I was in, it was either a trickle or it was a gush, right? And then at the front line, we had to spend time trying to figure out what applies and what doesn't apply. If you don't really have the time for that, that knowledge is lost. Those best practices are lost. I think one of the things that the pandemic has taught us, it's accelerated um, our uh, ability and insights into how do we transfer best practices and i think the key there is what we have learned is that we 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 approach it with intentionality because it's really about recognizing that as broadly diversified as we are we de- in, w- within united health group uh, we have really, really a large body of thought leadership. We have extensive capabilities. And so the learnings here is how we pull that through and harness all that and localize it in the different countries, recognizing also that the learning goes both ways, right? So it's really about engaging the local clinicians. It's really about ensuring that they receive this knowledge and are able to rapidly, practically apply that and in the form of practical innovation. And Brazil, you mentioned, is a really, really great example of that because I think one of our biggest learnings from Brazil, what they are very skilled at, the healthcare community and the clinical models that are developed there, they're really skilled at very practical, urgent and rapid innovation, you know, and we see this across South America. A couple of examples of, you know, the work that we've done in in this regard, a a lot of it was related to the pandemic. Um, When the pandemic struck, the question was, how do we rapidly bring together knowledge? in a way that it can be immediately utilized by the frontline, recognizing that no one organization is the owner of knowledge. So we actually put in place um, COVID clinical roundtables where we pulled in experts from across the world who were standing at the front lines. So we pulled in the Chinese group who had helped to manage the epicenter in China. We also reached out to the Italian group in Moderna. We reached out to the South Korean group who were doing a lot of work around vaccine development. And we also reached out to the New York group in uh, Columbia Presbyterian who were managing the surge, brought all this thinking together and collectively we were able to leverage that and um, immediately apply it locally. We also had the same challenge working with external stakeholders, we were able to partner around modifying ventilators. So we worked with the Boston Scientific Group, University of Minnesota, and were able to you know, work together to develop these basic ventilators that could be used in countries that were resource constrained. So we're, and I think the other thing we're learning is the power of thought leadership. Really reaching out to the local leaders, those physicians at the front line to teach us and providing a forum whereby we showcase their thought leadership. At United, we have um, recently, well, over the past year, developed a global clinical journal. And the purpose of that is actually to showcase thought leadership and practical innovation from um, our colleagues across the world within United Health Group. Um, and this has actually really helped um, rapid uh, knowledge transfer. So I think that when we bring all this together, the question is, what are we seeing in terms of the impact? And I think the impact that we're beginning to see is that we are actually able to build clinical care models that truly serve the local communities. We're able to pull all this together and support the local communities in developing meaningful clinical solutions that truly change lives. We help drive practical innovation at the local level. And I think most importantly, we stimulate cross-learning from parallel communities that have previously existed in silence.
1: What I've heard from all of you are some themes about the collaboration part of this, about thought leadership, about pulling threads together and about the practical and being able to respond rapidly. I'm wondering if in the last couple of minutes, Dr. Theodore, Dr. Ting, anything to add before we have to give up today? But I want to keep this conversation going. So last words.
3: Well, I'll just say uh, very briefly that indeed collaboration is critical, but as has been mentioned, to not miss the opportunity to take in the lessons and to make sure that our organizations and our healthcare systems do not in some way clamor to what we had before. We have this opportunity presently in front of us to evolve into new, more vibrant, more inclusive healthcare systems. And it's my hope that each one of us listening today thinks not how do we get back to where we were before, but how we can continue to advance the care that we're trying to deliver to all. So thanks for the time today, Mark.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ting. You're still on mute. My fault.
0: (laughs) I'd like to, and maybe with a word of optimism, um, you know, uh, we've all been through now 13 months of an experience that none of us wants to repeat. um, And there's some great learnings. Um, And speaking to everyone that's watching and each of you, I, I know we've all experienced the losses whether that is a loss of someone who had a consequence or a complication from COVID, or whether that loss was not being able to celebrate a birthday or holiday with a family member or relative. We have the tool within our reach to end this pandemic Uh, through the collaboration of scientists and the private sector right now. I would encourage everyone to do what you can to take a friend, to take a neighbor to get this vaccine because as a world, as a country and at Delta Airlines, all of us are ready to reclaim our joy and to reclaim our lives again. And we have that possibility. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I look forward to staying engaged with all of you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Thiem. and I just love that notion of reclaiming our joy through this opportunity that's come to us as a gift from the science and from all who've made this now a possible brighter future if, and that's you're correct in putting this on all of us, we do everything we can to get everybody to claim their possible joy. Thank you so much to all our panelists. Look forward to our next conversation. And to our viewers, uh, stay tuned. Dr. Michael Osterholm, some of you are devotees of his uh, uh, weekly podcasts and information, but we're going to have a uh, fireside chat about where we're going now and look a little bit at some of those controversies and debates underway. So we'll be back to you in just two minutes. Thank you so much again to our panelists and thanks to all who are watching and being part of World Health Day 2021.